Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair with new ideas on economics and ecology. Everybody's got a right to live. Everybody's got a right April the 22nd, 1970, Earth Day. Everybody's got a right to live. Hundreds of thousands of North Americans are taking part in demonstrations, ceremonies and lectures to emphasize a cause affecting everyone, keeping the Earth livable. We're here today because we know something's got to be done. Now, words are all right. Words, words, speeches, speeches, songs, songs. But I hope that every single one of us goes home this evening deciding on something we're going to do, do, do. Earth Day. For many people, the beginning of environmentalism is a mass movement. Greenpeace and pollution probes started up. Governments got into the act. In the United States, the Environmental Protection Agency. In Canada, Environment Canada. Consciousness about the environment was raised. But so were expectations. And in spite of all the activity, problems like toxic chemical pollution and degradation of the soil continue. They even grow worse. It's like the mythical hydra. You cut off one head and two grow back. We are no better off with respect to the way we're dealing with the natural world and the environment today than we were 25 or 50 or 100 years ago. Why is it? Something obviously is wrong with our solution. We have assumed that we were rational beings, that we would therefore, through political and administrative means, take the proper measures. We aren't doing this. So why aren't we? Can it be that we're not getting to the root of the problem? Tonight on Ideas, you'll be hearing from people who've thought deeply about this. In fact, their school of thought is sometimes called deep ecology. Deep ecologists believe our environmental crisis cannot be solved by merely installing scrubbers in smokestacks or catalytic converters in cars. They believe we must also dig deeper and re-examine our view of nature. Deep ecology is an inquiry which attempts to bring us to a much deeper understanding of nature as it is with all its mysteries and its strangeness, but also its reciprocity with ourselves. And what people are beginning to realize is that approaching the world with a certain kind of compassion brings a deeper understanding than approaching it as a kind of alien being to be feared or conquered. New Ideas on Economics and Ecology is written and presented by David Cayley. Deep ecology is a term coined by a Norwegian philosopher named Arne Ness. He first used it in the early 1970s when he published an influential essay about ecology. In that essay, Ness distinguished between two types of ecology, deep and shallow. Shallow, of course, isn't a term anybody's likely to own up to. So Ness's followers have subsequently tended to speak of reform rather than shallow ecology. But the gist of the distinction is between those interested in controlling symptoms and those interested in identifying causes. In Canada, one of the voices of deep ecology is called the Trumpeter. It describes itself as the journal of the Canadian Eco-Philosophy Network. Its editor is Alan Drenkson, a teacher of philosophy at the University of Victoria on Vancouver Island. Here's how he explains Ness's use of the term deep ecology. 
when Ness was asked in an interview if he could sort of state the essence of deep ecology as he understood it, he said in response to that question, well, think of it in terms of an inquiry that you're carrying on. He says, now, of course, you could ask, what is the source of this environmental problem? And you focus on a particular one, and you try to find a source, say, of a certain pollutant in a river. You follow the river back up, and you find it uh, a certain factory that makes antifreeze, and releasing an affluent, et cetera, et cetera, and you stop there. Now, that's a, a reform, or what Ness called a shallow ecological sort of approach. You simply stop there. But Ness said what we do as deep ecologists is to go on to ask what form of education, what form of religion, what form of politics, what form of economics, what forms of technology, and so on, are most conducive to the integrity and uh, the well-being of all beings of planet Earth, not just human beings, but of all beings. And this kind of inquiry that Ness is talking about is an ever-deepening questioning of our ends, our values. In short, these are the deep questions that philosophy is always asked, but what Ness was saying is that now we have to ask them in the ecological context with the ecological consciousness that is emerging uh, and is being developed as a result of the efforts of all kinds of different people, not just philosophers, but scientists and artists and so on. Alan Drenkson insists that deep ecology is not a set of fixed principles. It's an approach, an attitude. Essentially, although the term is overused, it's a holistic philosophy. It says that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, and that we realize value in our lives through our relatedness to this larger whole. With respect to philosophy of nature, what the deep ecologists, as I understand their writings, seem to me to be saying is that we find our sense of well-being and worth not by withdrawing into subjectivity, nor by denying values that exist in the world, but by involving ourselves in an active way with the natural world, with our human communities, and it's through our relationships that we realize value. So what they're saying is that if you withdraw, withdraw into yourself alone in total subjectivity, all values seem to go. It seems to be a kind of nihilism. The way out of that is to become involved with others, other people. But the human species as a whole could still uh, lack a sense of grounding of value unless it makes peace with the natural world. Nature is not engaged in warfare against humans. It's human beings that are engaged in a kind of warfare against nature. And uh, above all, we have to come to recognize that there's more to self than narrow, subjective human self. And that the more we recognize this, and the deeper we experience this, the more meaningful our lives become. And so in some respects, deep ecology is a response not only to environmental degradation, but to a very deep problem in modern human consciousness. To get outside of our subjectivity, Drenkson says, we should have direct contact with non-human nature. And to him, this means experiencing wilderness. If you go back to the very roots of the word wilderness, uh, what you find is that uh, you can rephrase the word to be something like will of the land. 
at the ancient cultures out of which the word wilderness is derived thought of the land as having a will of its own. For instance, the Celtic cultures, um, the older Roman culture, the, the earlier Greek culture, the, the, particularly those cultures that were uh, centered around oral traditions before literacy became more widespread. In the Roman context, they talked of it in terms of the spirit of the place. Uh, and uh, before you could build in a place, you had to divine its spirit, so to speak. You had to determine its will, find out what its will was. In a sense, then, the will of the land refers to the fact that nature exists in its own right for itself. It existed before humans came along and will more likely exist after humans leave the planet unless they totally destroy it. And that uh, other beings have their own ways, their own, their own will, and in wilderness, especially in big wilderness, nature is allowed to continue on its evolutionary destiny without human manipulation. So in that respect, you could say that in going back to wilderness, in a sense, we rediscover our own wild nature that's within each and every one of us. I mean, if you think about how much of our lives dominated by clock time, which is a totally mechanical, arbitrary form of timekeeping, and if you go into wilderness and you don't take clocks with you, and uh, just live by natural rhythms, you find that after a few days, something rather interesting happens to your sense of time. The sense of time you have, or time consciousness, is quite different in the wilderness than it is in the city. A city is structured around the clock. A modern industrial city is in part a product of a clock. And uh, without the clock, it couldn't exist. And uh, if all our clocks quit working tomorrow, it'd be total chaos. <laughs> the whole thing would collapse. Um, well, I don't know if it collapse, but it certainly would be strange. In any case, that's one of the things you find in wilderness. So people see wilderness in a lot of different ways. It's something in itself that has its own will, its own way, its own destiny. But also it's something that is in each and every one of us as no matter how much you know culture has been piled on top of it, there is a natural human being underneath there somewhere. So in a sense, that original nature that's within each and every one of us some people think, can be discovered perhaps more easily in the natural world. Deep ecology proposes a return to nature. But this doesn't mean turning away from modern science and going back to a more primitive worldview. Alan Drenkson sees it as an attempt to reach a higher type of science through what he calls a new apprenticeship to nature. Deep ecology is an inquiry which attempts to bring us to a much deeper understanding of nature as it is with all its mysteries and strangeness, but also its, its uh, reciprocity with ourselves. In a sense, it is a return to an objective foundation of value for our lives. Uh, that objective foundation that it, it is the entire matrix of the natural world. Maybe I put this in another way with an example of... Uh, natural farming. See, the natural farmer attempts to farm with a minimum disturbance of the natural world, attempts to maintain as much natural habitat and so on as possible. The disruption of the, of the sort of natural functioning of uh, biological communities is, is minimized in that kind of agriculture. Now, what I want to say about that in connection with deep ecology is that this represents an apprenticeship to nature through which he has learned to farm the way nature farms, basically. Now, to me, this represents the 
deepest kind of science, because if science is an inquiry whose aim ultimately is to understand the way the world is in itself, then that kind of observation of the natural world that brings us the deepest understanding is the most scientific. And what people are beginning to realize is that approaching the world with a certain kind of compassion brings a deeper understanding than approaching it as a kind of alien being to be feared or conquered. Every once in a while, someone spoils a word for me. Last fall, it happened again when I read a new book by Neil Everenden, a zoologist at York University. The book was called The Natural Alien. The title refers to our alienation from nature, a major theme in deep ecology. And the word Everenden spoiled for me was environment. When you speak of environment, it automatically presupposes that all the value, all the life part has been scraped off into the important viewing subject. It's like a Renaissance painting where the, where the viewer looks out across this empty world, surveying it in a detached way. Then you've got environment. Once there's no involvement, once there's no, no interaction with it, it's just that stuff. And to describe someone as an environmentalist, then, is to describe someone who is interested in that stuff. And that, in turn, I think is misleading because what the original experience of that individual was that led him or her to this concern was not that stuff, but one's relationship to it, one's involvement with it as a field of self, if you like. Um, one's feeling that, uh, of being a part, of being at home and being involved and being, uh, in being the world, in being. So ironically, the very concept of environment reveals an attitude which prevents one ever being part of ever accomplishing what the original motivation is, I think, to the environmentalist, namely a personal, deep commitment to place. To Neil Everenden, the word environment describes what's out there, apart from us. It's a word with a whole philosophy hidden inside it, Cartesian science. Cartesian science began in the 17th century when the French philosopher René Descartes split the world into subjects and objects. Well, Cartesian science gives you a means of accomplishing something. But it's a mental trick that requires that you, first of all, forget something. It's a, a trick that, that divides experience into two categories, that which can be handled and that which can't. Now, that which can be handled, the quantitative, it does very well with. The danger is that it, after a while, begins to seem as if that's all there is, or at least that's all there is worth thinking about. Now, if it happens that something of concern to you arises which does not fit into that category exclusively, you're left without any forum to talk to or any tools to speak with. And I think that's where the problem comes in, in the reliance we have on modern science. The unspoken assumption that only if it can be spoken of in scientific terms is it worth saying. That's another of the encouragements to translating concerns into materialist terms, of course. But more often, it's a, a barrier to ever speaking about the experience that moves you in the first place, because it almost seems by definition to be unreal. It is by definition unreal if you want to be fundamentally accurate about it in scientific terms. One's experience is considered subjective and therefore not you know, 
real in the sense that we uh, that we usually use the term. So the the personal experience that moves the environmentalist in the first place is the unreal part, which you don't talk about. Instead, you talk about the material things that seem to be the expression of his concern, the polluted water. Not the experience of the person, not the significance of the water, but something you can measure in the water. Neil Everenden has described a kind of catch-22. We may feel deep concern, even love for nature, but when we translate those feelings into scientific language, we only betray them. Don Livingston has described a similar problem. Livingston's a lifelong naturalist and a colleague of Neil Everenden's at York University's Faculty of Environmental Studies. In 1981, he published an essay called The Fallacy of Wildlife Conservation. It read like a cry of despair. A career in wildlife conservation had convinced Livingston that conservationists could only get a public hearing if they based their arguments on the usefulness of nature to human beings. This made conservationism palatable to the people, but in Livingston's view, it also undermined the movement itself. In trying to make arguments against the human domination of nature, one only ended up by reinforcing it. I felt that I was looking at that time, which is now, really, um, at something that had developed since the early part of the century, where wildlife was seen entirely in utilitarian terms, and in order to justify the preservation of species or of habitats of groups of species, you had to justify them in some sort of utilitarian way, and thereupon you used the term resource to say to something that obviously has no utility except its very existence. Can you describe some of these utilitarian rationales that are put forward? Well, we must not lose the, we must not lose, note that, we must not lose the Amazonian rainforest, for example, because the Amazonian rainforest supplies X percentage of the oxygen to our atmosphere, point number one. Point number two is we must not destroy these forests because who knows what goodies may be hidden there that may be of use to us someday. There may be a tree or a shrub that will produce some highly desired cosmetic, or there may be a tree or shrub or an animal that provides some much desired poison. I once saw in Florida a sign outside a shell emporium saying, rarities unknown to exist. And this is much the same thing. The Amazonian rainforest is filled with rarities and wonderful goodies and things for us that we don't know about yet. Therefore, it must be conserved. That is as far as we've been able to get. So why can't we get any further? Livingston believes it's because our whole culture denies nature an independent existence. We believe nature's there to serve us. To make any argument, any rational, linear, logical argument on behalf of the whooping crane is impossible in our language. And it's impossible also within the, within the overarching uh, system of beliefs which we've inherited. Because the thing isn't of any value. It's probably worth $1.98 if you were to weigh it out on uh, some scales. But is that the point? Uh, must we marshal logical argument in order to address that which is not logical? The existence of the whooping crane is not logical. Everything John Livingston and Neil Everenden have been saying point to a paradox. Our separation from nature frustrates and subverts our attempts to preserve it. Their writings take this further and suggest that we'll never solve our environmental problems until we find a language, 
a philosophy, and a way of life which overcomes this separation. And this means trying to unearth the roots of our alienation. Unfortunately for John Livingston, alienation virtually defines human culture. The overwhelming human speciality is transmissible technique, transmissible down the generations. That's what culture is, is transmissible and transmitted techniques of doing things. And the most important technique, in my view, in our history has been how to exercise social control. I think that everything else thereafter became utterly extraneous. Everything else became either meat for the fire or water or whatever, and was serving a means of thought and a means of living that had utterly transcended our biological nature. We, we lived in a fabricated world long, long, long before we began to fabricate things of any particular significance because it was an intellectually fabricated world, I think. Why does the practice of social control denature nature? Because it invites the world to be contained within the invisible sphere which represents that society. It's like Northrop Fry says about uh, myth. He says that one of the functions of myth was to set a, I believe he said a stockade around a society and prevent it from having any further truck or trade to do with nature on the outside and to contain itself. That's what I mean by an invisible bubble around a society. I think that the more complex, the more complicated and complex and sophisticated, if you like, the social rituals and the social construction of reality, if I can put it that way, become in a society. The more nature is denatured and the more meaningless nature becomes. Overcoming this isolation, says Livingston, means getting outside of our limiting cultural assumptions. And the only way we can do that, he says, is by recognizing that we are also members of the larger community of nature. I think what we're looking for is not so much some recipe for the future or things like that, but a recovery of that which already exists in us. My hope, all of my optimism, rests in the fact that I bleed when I'm pricked and I bruise when I'm hit, and thank God I'm a biological being. And since I am a biological being, I still have in me that wondrous capacity to live as part of a greater enterprise than I, and a greater enterprise than that of my own species and my own family. As a biological being, I have evolved to be integrated with and part of and participate in something that is much grander and more continuing than my species. All animals, I will assert, are largely unaware of individual self and individual self-interest, largely, if not almost entirely, unaware of that. Interspecies, that is to say, actions of animals across species lines between different kinds of animals all seem to me to demonstrate a mutual and reciprocal and cooperative level of mutual understanding which is quite difficult to find even between two human individuals of the same species let alone across species i believe that this exists i know that it exists from my observation of animals i've done little else in my life but watch animals I know that this recovery of my animalness is possible, and when I'm alone and I go away, I can do this. It's difficult for me to put it into words because words in language have a tyranny of their own, and so do metaphors and, and so forth. But I do believe that <clears throat> from looking at natural communities all of my life and the way they seem to work, and the way they seem to work in such a wonderful reciprocal way, 
that there is a chance for us to simply try and recover that which we have amputated. I believe that we are a prosthetic being. I believe that our cultures and traditions are prostheses set in place of that which we have conceptually amputated. And I believe that to throw away the crutch that's represented by our cultural beliefs, realities, and so on, to throw away that crutch be very difficult. But to thank God there is something there. I don't need the crutch. I am whole. I am a biological being. I do not need it. When you speak of cooperation, could you say more what you mean? I mean effective cooperation. I mean that the net result could only have occurred had there been mutual participation, and that I would define as cooperation. Whether it's uh, chasing and catching something, or finding something, or feeding, or whatever. In other words, uh, various people, Barry Holston Lopez being the best known one, who's postulated something he calls the conversation of death. I see it rather as the conversation of life between the wolf and the caribou, or between the wolf and the deer. This I have seen uh, myself. The animal identifies itself as the one that's going to be consumed on that day. That's not just effective cooperation, that's utter mutualism, in my view. And this happens in nature daily, uh, instant by instant. John Livingston also believes that this kind of participation is available to human beings. He says he experienced it himself one day while he was diving. I'm a great uh, swimmer and uh, coral reef snooper. And I've done this and had a marvelous time doing it. We, we love to do this whenever we have a chance. I once lined up in the cleaning station. You must have heard of the cleaning station, the, the small young of many species of fish, and even the adults of some species of uh, saltwater fishes, clean other fishes, make a living by eating parasites off them, the way tick birds eat parasites off elephants and so on. And if you, it's like a car wash, and you line up. And I recall lining up behind a nice big grouper and lined up behind him, got clean. There was a parrotfish lined up behind me. You just go through the lineup, and they clean all the stuff off you, and away you go, exactly like a, a car wash. And that, I find, is mutualism uh, in the extreme. They're there to do their stuff. You come and do it, and you've done it together. And everybody benefits. In nature, everybody benefits. Not everyone can line up at a fish car wash, but we can all have some kind of direct experience of nature. And it's only through such personal experience that Livingston says we'll ever gain a new attitude towards other forms of life. It can only come such an attitude from individual experience of the non-human. And I don't care if it's a poor little fish in a goldfish bowl or a little pot of geranium on the windowsill or the woods outside my window here or my dogs or whatever it is, but the growing, especially the child, but the mature individual too, must have contact with that which is not human and which is not of human manufacture. I believe that we live in a society of chronic sensory deprivation, not in the classical uh, psychological sense, but in the sense that we are deprived of the stimuli that can only derive from sources which are not human and not of human manufacture. Whereas every non-human being is born and grows up in and matures in and functions in an environment which is multitudinous in its sensory information from hundreds or maybe thousands of other species around it, both plant and animal. The human child is born and grows up nowadays in our cities in an environment which the contact, the mere existence of the non-human is systematically denied. 
and I believe that much of the stress and the pathological results of that stress, as in dominance, hierarchy, and striving, and competition, all that, arise from sensory undernutrition. And therefore, obviously, the, the sermon ends with have those children have, at the very least, pets, at the very least, contact with something, especially at the critical prepubescent time. We hear people, ironically, this is one of the crushing ironies of our time, do-gooders go downtown and say that people in the downtown core are suffering from sensory overload, simply because the neon signs flash and the horns hoot and so forth, and the sensory overload that so we turn off because we have all this overload. We are seeing such a pathetically hair's breadth wide part of the spectrum of, of potential sensory input that we're not overloaded, we're undernourished to the point of desperation. Another route back to the roots of our ecological crisis has been mapped by Paul Shepard. He's a friend of John Livingston's and a teacher at Pitzer College in Claremont, California. Shepard's also an intellectual maverick who's dipped into aesthetics, biology, ecology, and anthropology in his search for a reconciliation with nature. This search goes back to his days as a graduate student when Shepard was studying the history of art. His idea then was that we'd stop treating nature as a mere resource if we could only appreciate its beauty. Then he noticed that fashions and aesthetics change and that wild nature has not always been considered beautiful. Paul Shepard went back to the drawing board. I dumped my books out the window, so to speak, and went back to the library and began to read anthropology in the hope of finding some, for me, more sounder base. Uh, from which to begin my own work. And at that time, it so happened that there was a lot of new work coming in from the study of tribal peoples. We had, for the first time, good, solid studies in the field of still living, foraging, which is to say hunting and gathering non-agricultural people, which gave us a new uh, sense of the value of the views of such people without trapping us in the old notion of the romanticism of noble savages. Well, the thing that astonished me most about it was not that there was a good, harmonious uh, ecological relationship among such people and their surroundings, but was that their intellectuality about animals was so sophisticated and that their culture contains such... Uh, erudition. I remember the amazement with, with which I noticed that uh, Levi Strauss spoke of Australian Aborigines as intellectual snobs after spending an evening with them talking about their mythology. So that I was deeply moved by this notion that we're not dealing with people who have uh, uh, merely vague and general notions of their world, but highly evolved stories in which uh, a profound heritage of observation and thought 
made connection to the natural world largely in uh, analogies between the way in which they organized society and the way the natural systems worked around them. So that's where I then took a whole new 90-degree turn in my own thinking. You can appreciate Paul Shepard's sense of the richness of the hunting and gathering way of life if you think back to something John Livingston said earlier. He was talking about sensory deprivation in modern societies and said we only attend to a tiny fraction of what our senses can potentially tell us. But hunters and gatherers had to maintain a much more universal awareness. Food might appear anywhere, anytime, and they could only survive by constantly reading their world for meaningful signs. This ability to read the natural world is what Shepard means by the intellectuality of tribal peoples. He thinks civilized peoples lost this ability when they invented agriculture and began to domesticate animals. If I had to pick a kind of moment in human time when uh, what uh, the Christians call the fall took place, I think it would have to be with that subversion of ecosystems in which we took into captivity, which is to say took into slavery other species. And make no mistake about it, you can talk about these animals as our great friends and fellow components in a system, and you can talk about your companion animals and your pets uh, the same way that we euphemistically spoke of uh, slaves a hundred years ago, human slaves. Nonetheless, the taking of substantial number of wild creatures and turning them genetically into monsters which were totally dependent on their human caretakers, uh, had some extraordinary effects, I think, on our own psychology, on our way of perceiving the world, because what it did was to create a world around us which we had made and over which we had control and which was dependent on our management and manipulation of it. Now we have what? a thousand generations of human beings already who've grown up in, in that world in, which seems to have been made by the will and the creativity of human beings in which the most important creatures are those extraordinary blobs. And I can't help but use this word because what we do to a creature when we modify it in domestication is to deprive it of all of its subtlety, of the richness of behavior and form which its natural ancestors had, we can't leave those in. That The poor creature has to live in a, in a barren world compared to the environment of its ancestral forms. So we've uh, stricken from these forms that which made them most beautiful and challenging and interesting, and then that's our idea of nature, that, that nature then becomes brutish, it becomes simple, it becomes something we must manage. You can call it stewardship if you want to, which is another one of those euphemisms that we hear occasionally. We are to take responsibility for the world, which merely says that we're on the way to either uh, making slaves of the rest of creation or uh, bringing it to extinction. So that's when the fall took place, that if there was such a thing, it was when we 
left a world to which we can never return, but which nonetheless may give us some important insights and clues as to who we are, when we left that world and became settled people with a very impoverished fauna and flora around us. Paul Shepard believes that the forager's way of life can still give us important insights into who we are and possibly show us a way out of our estrangement from nature. The key for him lies in a particular pattern of childhood experiences, experiences which our own children tend to lack. Such people reared their children in the most extraordinary way, which is to say that by the time the child was initiated into an adult society, the person's own sense of being at home in the world and of being a part of things and living in a, a world that was good with a great deal of respect for non-human beings, what we would perhaps call a kind of humility about the natural world, was, was the other thing that, that struck me so deeply about such groups of people. And being a biologist, my own bias was to speculate that hundreds, perhaps thousands of generations of living a tribal existence had built into our own genetic makeup uh, certain expectations about what life would be like for us as infants and as children and as adolescents, that the body had and the mind had a program given, as it were, by our own uh, biological heritage of uh, assumptions about the way in which we would be dealt with by parents, by peers, by elders, and so on, that involved certain critical period experiences. So uh, what seemed to me to be common among this greatly diverse group of foraging peoples was certain kinds of experiences in infancy and childhood, which one might call bondings, not only to mother and parents and people, but to the landscape and to the natural world, and then certain experiences that involved uh, a religious perspective, that, in that involved a, uh, initiatory ceremonies and experiences that the adolescent went through, that uh, moved the individual to a, a more mature perspective on himself or herself in the world as a whole. Paul Shepard has laid out this theory at length in a book called Nature and Madness. He draws support for his ideas from the vast psychoanalytic literature on child development, but he differs from most psychoanalytic thinkers in one crucial respect. He thinks they've overlooked the importance of our bond with nature. The difficulty is that in spite of their, the care with, with which we have been studying children, the people who've been doing it have not by and large, been very interested in nature or non-human part of the world, so that we have this tremendous amount of information, but the interpretations usually then neglect even the possibility that some of what we are seeing involves some special kind of experience with the non-human. Let me give you an example of, of what I mean. Uh, we, in the last 10 years, the studies of infant mother bonding have led to a whole new sense of the importance of the naturalness of the nursing mother and the importance of contact, of sound, of 
the smell of the mother, of the taste of the milk, of the amount of time that the infant spends with its mother, that seems to be essential for the rest of the child's and the adult's behavior, for it to come into a world with confidence that there is a protective, informing uh, partner who is uh, nourishing and who is beautiful and who is there. What we then go on to do, however, is to assume that what the young child does with this is to grow largely into a totally human context. And yet, uh, we have all this information on children in places and children in play, which suggests that what they are in fact doing is transferring the features of that infant-mother bond to some kind of larger matrix that is in the third to tenth year of childhood, there is a kind of attachment to place or places apparent in the everyday lives of children, what would be called perhaps imprinting. A place is somehow imprinted after the model of the mother. Uh, as protective, as interesting, as communicating, as nourishing, and is infinitely challenging in terms of exploring these bonds that, that bind it to it. Now, if there is anything to such a hypothesis, it would imply that what the child needs in that little period of its life is the same kind of opportunity for bonding to and parental and social facilitation of that connectedness and that bonding to place that we are giving the infant now with its mother. That what is going on in terms of this infancy bonding with the mother and the child's bonding with place are creating in the child the terms which will serve as metaphors, that will serve as the images and the poetic uh, language for creating a total universe, a cosmos, when they come to adolescence. How else do we talk about in, uh, ultimate things? We talk, talk about paradise, we talk about a landscape. It looks like a pastoral garden. All of the ultimate uh, imagery of what we believe to be finally possible and true about the universe requires a language or other signs and images that come back to social and and ecological relationships of infancy and childhood. The people you've been listening to so far can be loosely grouped under the banner of deep ecology. Murray Bookchin sails under a different flag. He calls his philosophy social ecology. Bookchin began his intellectual career as a Marxist. Then he was drawn to ecology. And in the process, he rejected his earlier Marxism, particularly the idea that human freedom depends on the domination of nature. This led him to formulate social ecology. Its central idea is that we oppress nature because we oppress one another. What I'm claiming is 
that unless we eliminate social domination, that is to say the domination of human by human, we will never eliminate a sensibility that entails the domination of nature. And with that, eliminate the sources, at least so far as our mentality is concerned, of the ecological crisis we have today. That's why I speak in terms of social ecology, not deep ecology, because I don't know what's deeper than deep ecology or what is the deepest ecology of all the deep ecologies floating around. But I do know that the relationship of the ecological problem to the social problem, namely social ecology, is the real issue we're faced with today. Can you explain more fully why the domination of nature follows from the domination of human beings by other human beings? Well, it creates a mentality of domination. We start looking first at people as objects to be mobilized and controlled and manipulated. And then afterward, we extend that out into that revered world we call the natural world, which is supposed to be the source of so many of our pagan deities. <laughs> In point of fact, nature remained a revered and enchanted area long after people became disenchanted objects for building pyramids, <laughs> roads, temples and so on, ought to be destroyed in gladiatorial battles in Roman arenas. <laughs> Nature came later. The Marxian scheme, and in fact the liberal scheme, works with the notion that in order to dominate nature and control nature, we have to dominate people, whereas I've reversed that. So the Marxian scheme would work with the idea that we cannot have freedom until we dominate nature completely. Then afterward, human beings will be free to do all these beautiful things that human beings are capable of doing. I've reversed the argument, and I've said, until we have social freedom, we'll never enter into a balance with the natural world. The essence of Murray Bookchin's approach is his refusal to divide society from nature. He sees evolution as nature grading into society, and society as built on biological foundations. I don't see separations, oppositions between the two. I see distinctions between the two. People don't think that way today, and they haven't thought that way more or less for thousands of years. They tend to see culture versus nature. <laughs> you go to France today, and they'll scream at you, I defend culture against nature. <laughs> nature is blind, necessitarian. Nature is cruel. Nature is stingy. And by the way, these are fundamental notions that have defined our ideas of economics, sociology, history, for example, if you ask for a definition of what economics is, your textbook definition is that economics is the study of scarce resources versus unlimited needs. Well, what are scarce resources? That's a stingy nature. What are unlimited needs? That's a predatory market culture that seems to want to consume, consume, consume. So what we've done is projected these notions right into the very definition of our disciplines, which involves a war of culture against nature. If, as Murray Bookchin says, we derive our models of nature from society, and if, as he says, they're usually wrong, then I think we have to ask if we ever can form a true picture of nature that doesn't just reflect our prejudices. Bookchin's answer is this can only happen when we ourselves are free. You see, I believe that when we reach a society that is truthful, that is emancipated, we will be able to look at nature without imposing ideological confines on the natural world. I therefore don't see nature simply as a realm of necessity, simply as a realm of fang and claw, simply as a jungle, which more accurately reflects our marketplace image of the world than the natural world. I see the symbiotic element in nature as well. 
I see the mutualistic element in nature as well. I see the cooperative element in nature as well. And I see that especially in the formation of the human species, because I don't, do not believe that we could have emerged out of the natural world aggress as a, aggressive beings, as uncooperative beings, as we could have survived each other <laughs> in the kind of warfare we are capable as thinking animals to create. If Bookchin's right, and we aren't meant to be aggressive, if we are inherently cooperative, then how can we learn to behave cooperatively? He argues we can do it by reversing our thinking about nature and for once following its lead. Natural systems tend towards complexity and diversity, so we should emphasize those values in our social lives. But at the moment, Bookchin says, we're moving in the opposite direction. When I talk about an ecological ethics and I emphasize the need for diversity, the need for complexity, I'm talking about moving with the main thrust of evolutionary development, not only naturally, but culturally. Today, we are reversing that whole evolutionary development and replacing organic ties and a rich variety of associations by very synthetic and inorganic ones. We're putting machinery in the place of the biosphere. <laughs> We're putting chemicals in the place of well-buffered forms of decaying material that can be assimilated by soil and assimilated by the biosphere generally. We're creating toxic waste dumps. And with that, we are simplifying the human spirit as well. That's very important for me. We're creating people who have been, as it were, eviscerated psychologically <laughs> of all the rich complexity of history, culture, and who respond to the brute stimuli of TV and the mass media. We're turning back the clock socially and we're turning back the clock biotically, organically. This sounds pretty depressing, but Murray Bookchin hasn't lost hope at all. In fact, he's been particularly heartened by the emergence of green parties in Europe and more recently in North America. Bookchin has personal friends among the German Greens, and he's also been active in the formation of the North American Green Movement. To him, the Greens are social ecology in action. The Greens, I think, are bringing things together or could bring things together, that's what I like. In the 60s and through the 70s, and then even into, well, well into the 70s, separate movements emerged. First you had the counterculture, which is going to save the world with love. I, I think you can save the world with love, by the way. But which sort of became a little a caricature of itself. You also had the new left and the civil rights movement. But they all appeared in a sense as special interest groups and even subcultures. And then you had the emergence of the environmental and feminist movements. But the two were for a while separated from each other. And then you had the emergence of the anti-nuclear and peace movement and community movements, and citizens' initiatives. What I like about green politics is that all of these can be seen as phases in the development of a more unified approach that embraces all of them. <laughs> so that's what excites me about them. Green politics is still in its infancy in North America so it's a little early to tell if it really is social ecology in action. In fact, ecological philosophy generally is still in its infancy. And as you heard tonight, everyone involved in it has a different way of approaching our reconciliation with nature. Paul Shepard, for instance, hopes we can learn a different way of being from hunting and gathering cultures, while John Livingston seems to believe that culture itself is a form of alienation. 
Alan Drenkson says we must get outside of society to uncover our natural being, while Murray Bookchin stresses that society itself is a product of nature. But within these diverse views, there's at least one point of unity. Deep ecologists and social ecologists alike believe that we can only fully address our environmental crisis by first finding the cultural and historical roots of the problem. And to all of them, this means overcoming our isolation from the world and recognizing that in the end, all we have and all we are comes from nature. You've been listening to New Ideas on Economics and Ecology, written and presented by David Cayley. Technical Operations, Lawn Tulk. Production Assistants, Gail Brownell. And Production, Sarah Walsh. We've prepared a printed transcript of this four-part series. It costs $5, and you can get one by writing to Economics and Ecology, care of CBC Enterprises, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Please enclose a check or money order for $5, and remember that delivery takes about eight weeks. We've also prepared a reading list on the subject. It's free, and you can get one by writing to us here at Ideas. Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.